Um, I wanted to read a few of the words that Jesus said to his men on the night of his crucifixion. You know, when he was still in the upper room and they celebrated the Passover and then they transitioned into the Lord's Supper. Just to remind us of what he had told them beforehand that they didn't remember, that they forgot. Okay, so I think this will help us to uh, to realize that they should have remembered and they should have been focusing on his promises. Let's begin. You all know this. John 14 verses one to four. I'm going to read real fast because I'll run out of time if I don't. But Jesus said to his man in the upper room, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. So where would he have to go if he's going to prepare places for his uh, followers in his Father's house? Heaven, right? So he would have to rise from the dead to to go to heaven. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And so that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. And then down verse 6, of course, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And then look at verse um, 19 of the same chapter. He said, yet a little while and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. And let's go down to verses 27 to 30. He says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't give us the world's peace? (laughs) It's always a false peace. He says, uh, Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away, and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Remember, we talk so much about all of those verses. All right, now go over to verse uh, chapter 16, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. Chapter 16, starting at verse 4. But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, ye may remember. Did they remember? No, not at all. They didn't remember at all. <laughs> that ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And now verses 19 to 22. He had told them, look up at verse 16, he said, A little while and ye shall not see me, and again a little while and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. And that, of course, perplexed them, and they were saying, What does he mean? And so he explains in verse 19, Do ye inquire among yourselves of of that I said a little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. Did the world rejoice when they thought they got rid of Jesus? Yes, absolutely. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. And then he gave the example of a woman having a baby. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow. 
because her hour is come, but as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. Uh, verse 22, and ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. That was just to remind you of some of the things he had told his men just three days previous, and they forgot them all, didn't they? <laughs> all right, now would you move over to John chapter 20. This is going to be um, lesson 186, part B, Resurrection Evidence, and I've subtitled it The First Appearance. This is the Lord Jesus Christ's first resurrection appearance, and we are primarily going to be in John chapter 20, looking at verses 11 to 16. Would you bow in prayer with me? Father God, we thank you for this day that you have given to us. This is the day that the Lord hath made. Hath made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. I ask that we would now um, set apart our minds from all the busyness of our lives and help us to draw near unto you. Because if we draw near unto you, you will draw near unto us. Help us, Father, to trust in you with all our hearts and to lean not unto our own understanding, but in all our ways to acknowledge you and you will direct our paths. I ask now that you would direct our path and our minds and our hearts as we go into this next hour. Help us to truly um, just lift you up in our minds and our attitudes and may everything that is said and thought here this morning be put into captivity to Christ and honor him and glorify him. If there is any spirit that is not pleasing to you, I pray, Lord, that you would dismiss it now. Help us all to focus on what your Holy Spirit has to teach us and convict us of and comfort us with uh, through your word. For we pray, Jesus, in your blessed, precious name. Amen. Whatever a person may choose to believe about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, any person out there, there's one thing they all must admit. Something very, very significant happened on that early Sunday morning, three days following his crucifixion. Why do I say that? Well, for one thing, that event was significant enough for it to alter the course of history. You do know it altered the course of history. One man, a carpenter from a little podunk town named Nazareth, changed the course of history. We wouldn't be here this morning if he hadn't been born. Um, I mean, we'd be, probably be alive, but we wouldn't be gathered here today, would we? And it even changed the calendar. Now, that's got to be pretty significant, right? It's time from his birth backwards is called B.C., before Christ. And time after his birth is called A.D. Uh, A.D. actually comes from Latin, meaning Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. So something very significant happened on that Sunday morning. For another thing, that significant something was so dramatic that it caused a radical turnaround in the lives of 11 men. And many others. I remember the day it caused a radical turnaround in my life. Do you? I know you do. But we're going to focus on 11 such people, men, because that's what the scripture focuses on. And uh, this turnaround enabled them from that time forward to endure abuse, terrible abuse, persecution, and even death. Except for John, the apostles, including the apostle Paul, 
all died a martyr's death. All of them were persecuted because they tenaciously held to their belief in the death, the burial, and the third day bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You know, men will die for what they believe to be true, even though it may actually be false. We know that, don't we, in our world. People will die for what they sincerely believe is true, even though it may actually be false. They just don't know it. They don't know it's false. However, men will not die for what they know is a lie. They will not die for what they know is a lie, a deception. If the disciples had stolen the Lord's body, if they had lied about the empty grave clothes, and likewise if they had lied about actually seeing him resurrected, they would have known that the resurrection was a, was a farce. They would have known all the resurrection claims were false. But not one of them ever even wavered in his commitment to that belief, even in the face of the worst persecution and in the worst kind of ex- means of execution. Some of them beheaded, some of them crucified, some of them crucified upside down, uh, pushed off the top of the the pinnacle of the temple and then stoned and all kinds of, if you ever read Fox's book of martyrs, you know that they died terrible, in terrible ways. And we find actually that the, the resurrection is the centerpiece of all of their preaching and all of their writings. Um, this is interesting. Let me share with you something that one of our U.S. Supreme Court justices actually said, and his name is uh, Justice Antonin Scalia. You've heard of him? Right Now, he said this with sarcastic humor, and you won't get it till I get to the end of it, but here's what he said. Now, remember, he's being sarcastic. He says, the wise do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. It is really quite absurd. He's being facetious there, okay? The wise. And isn't that what we find in our world? You know, the wise intelligentsia, the elite. Oh, you don't really believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead. That's absurd. And so he's being sarcastic here. He says, so everything from the Easter morning to the ascension of Jesus had to be made up by the groveling enthusiasts. That's what he's calling the apostles and other early believers, groveling enthusiasts. Okay, it all had to be made up as part of their plan to get themselves martyred. (laughs) End of quote. That's good, isn't it? Isn't that good? It says they, they made it up. They made the whole thing up from, uh, from the resurrection on Sunday morning to the ascension of Jesus Christ just so they could be killed. Good plan, right? <laughs> Dr. Simon Greenleaf, who is a famous Harvard legal authority, states conclusively that the apostles would have broken under the tremendous pressure that they all faced if Jesus Christ had not raised from the dead and they knew it. They, I mean, at least one of them would have broken, right? Confessed. No, it really was. We made it up. You know, I, I, I'm not going to die for that when I know it's not true. And this is the only explanation for every single one of them having all the motivation in the world to go to their graves proclaiming the truth of the resurrection of their Lord Jesus Christ. The only motivation is that it was true and they knew it was true. They had seen him with their own eyes. It was not a deception. 
So what were the evidences presented by the Lord to convince these men and other early believers of the truth of his own much-repeated third-day prediction that he would rise and that he did indeed rise from the dead? Well, we discussed last week one of those evidences, and it was the wrappings in the tomb, the empty grave clothes. And the second evidence he gave to them was the resurrection appearances of the one who came from the tomb, the Lord himself. Now, there are 11 such recorded appearances for us in the scripture, although likely there were more. He probably appeared more than 11 times, but 11 times are recorded for us. He appeared in his resurrected body, his glorified resurrected body, to a wide variety of witnesses, men and women, Probably even some teens and children. Remember one time he appeared to at least 500 people. 500. And so I imagine there were some children there. He appeared at various times of the day as we see on just Resurrection Sunday, don't we? He appeared in the early morning. He appeared in the afternoon to those on the road to Emmaus. And he appeared later on in the evening to the apostles gathered in the upper room. He appeared in both Judea and up in Galilee. He appeared in the open and he appeared behind locked doors. He appeared on the road to Emmaus, and he appeared on the Mount of Olives. He appeared privately to individuals such as Mary Magdalene and Peter, and he also appeared before multitudes. As I said, on at at least one occasion, he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And we have recorded for us, for our benefit, some of the different responses and reactions of some of the people to the first time that they saw him. Last week, we looked at the responses of two men. Who were they? John and Peter. Mostly we focused on John, who was the first one to believe in the resurrection. He believed. I don't know that he shared that with the other men, though. Remember, he's probably the youngest apostle. He could be a teenager, really, 18, maybe, something like that. He believed when he saw those empty grave clothes, but I don't think he shared his belief with the others. And I'll tell you why when we get to other passages. But um, we saw their response when they observed the evidence of the empty grave clothes. Now, in today's lesson, we're going to look at the response of Mary Magdalene to the evidence of the resurrected one from the tomb. She becomes the first person to ever see Christ resurrected, the first one. And interestingly, she doesn't even, at first, know him. She's the first one to see him, and she doesn't even recognize him. And remember, we talked last week about John chapter 20, how John, in that chapter, actually gives us four testimonies. He gives his own first, doesn't he? How he came to believe in the resurrection. Then he shares with us, the next one is Mary Magdalene's testimony, and how she came to believe in the resurrection. Then we have... The, um, the response of ten of the apostles gathered later on that Sunday evening together, probably in the upper room, as they collectively see the resurrected Christ. So we learn about their testimony and what it was that caused them to believe in the resurrection. And then finally, last of all, we have the testimony of who? Thomas. Thomas. Um, now there are other appearances that take place chronologically because between the time the Lord appeared to the ten on Sunday, Easter Sunday, and the time that he appeared to Thomas a week later, he appeared to other people during that week. But John doesn't give us those. 
So we'll, you know, probably we'll have to wait till the fall and we'll, we'll talk about some of the other appearances that he made during that intervening week, such as to Peter and to the two who were on their way to Emmaus. So then today our focus is on the first resurrection appearance of the Lord and it was to a woman who had at one time been possessed by seven demons. Is that not grace? First one he appears to is a woman who had been totally under the dominion power of Satan. And Mark stresses this. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to what Mark says. He's stressing the grace in all of this. He says, um, this is Mark 16, 9. Now, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Now, I'm saying, stressing that because we have already talked about the Lord's appearance to those group, the women, the the big group of uh, Galilean women. But chronologically, he doesn't appear to them until after he first appeared to Mary at the tomb. So chronologically, I did talk about that first. But, you know, this is how we know the sequence from Mark. He says he did appear first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven devils. There's the grace. He's reminding us. Can you believe he appeared first to this woman who had been possessed like that? The Lord had delivered her from her horrific bondage to Satan's power. And she, ever since, had been devotedly serving him, hadn't she? She had been ministering to him and his men ever since. We don't know when she was delivered, but ever since that time, she had been serving him with her hands, with whatever she could do, and also probably from her sustenance financially. They think that she was probably a wealthy woman, as was also Joanna. And they helped him financially with his ministry. And so she was just a devoted woman, you know, to whom much is forgiven, much is just, she just loved much more. Anyway, she, um, she was completely crushed by his death. Devastated. She was doubly devastated, uh, by the disappearance of his body because now she could not even minister to him one last time with her burial spices. Because to her hasty and wrong conclusion, when she had seen that stone removed from the mouth of the tomb, what had she concluded? Someone had stolen his body. And that was the report that she ran off to give to the disciples, at least we know to Peter and John. It was both an erroneous and an oxymoronic message. Don't you love that word? Oxymoronic. <laughs> If Jesus is Lord, then nobody could do anything to him that he did not allow. They did not take his body. That's her message. They, they, whoever the they was, they have taken his body. And I don't know where it is. They didn't take his body. Who took his body? He did. He took his body. He took it right up out of those grave clothes and that headpiece, neither of which Mary had seen. Why? That was her own fault, because she didn't go into the tomb. You know, he had said in John 10, 18, that he had the power to lay down his life. Nobody took his life from him. He laid it down of his own will. And he had also said that he had the power to take it up again. He took up his own body. Nobody else took his body. And he also transformed it in the twinkling of an eye. That's fast. That's like just a little glint from your eye. That's how fast the rapture's going to be, and we're going to get our new bodies. But in a twinkling of an eye, he transformed that body, that same body, into a new, glorified, resurrected body, not restricted 
by time, space, and matter. Are you looking forward to that? Yes. I don't know which one I'm looking forward to more. The time, maybe, you know, we won't get old. (laughs) Time won't have any effect on us. I think we're all going to be the perfect 33. Don't you think? I mean, we kind (laughs) of... I think we reach our peak at 33. Any of you 33? That's your peak. From there on, you know, it's going <laughs> to... But we're not going to be restricted by time, space, or matter. I mean, if we want to go to another galaxy, boom, there we are. Beam me up and you know, we can walk through walls and... Isn't it exciting? Oh, can't wait. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Well, after Peter and John realized that Mary had not gone into the tomb... You know, Mary, what you see in the tomb? Ah, forgot. I forgot to go in there and see what evidence might be in there. When they found out, she just turned on her heels and left the scene. They took off in a sprint to the tomb to see things for themselves. And we looked at their experience at the tomb last week. And then, apparently sometime after Peter and John had raced off, Mary had also set out for a return trip to the tomb. I think she's tired by this time because she doesn't get there till after they have left. I don't know, maybe she stayed there wherever they were staying and talked a while to Mary, the the mother of Jesus, because she probably would be where John was. I'm just speculating. I don't know why she didn't, or maybe they just both ran, they're men, and they ran so much faster, but she didn't get to the tomb until after Peter and John had already come and gone. Obviously, those two men didn't stay very long at the tomb, did they? Because she, she gets there, and they're already, there are, see, see again, all this coming and going at the tomb site. Did you ever, did you think this week about the grave clothes? I was wondering about that again this week. Whatever happened to those grave clothes and that rolled up headpiece? I got to thinking, of course, it would make sense that the uh, religious rulers would take it and destroy it because it just proved too much. I mean, it was just positive evidence and they might want to destroy it. But we never have a report of them actually going out to the tomb. I don't know. Do you think Peter and John took it to show the other disciples? And then I started reading the scripture about Peter and John, and there's no indication at all that they did that. And then I thought, well, the third option would be maybe the angels took it. Maybe the angels took it. I don't know. I can't be dogmatic about that, but one one thing I know is the good thing we don't have it because people would be worshiping it. (laughs) They would make a big cathedral around it, you know, and all. Anyway, I won't go there, but... um, so she doesn't get to the tomb until they have already left the two men, and um, that's where we're going to pick up our narrative. And what we read next is the testimony of how Mary Magdalene came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it is one of the most emotionally charged scenes in the scripture. It's an exciting part of the scripture. So let's look at John 20, verses 11 to 16. It says, But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, You know, I read and read and read, and I never find Mary going into the tomb. She doesn't ever go into the sepulcher. See where she is again? Remember the first time she went there? She just saw the stone was rolled away, turned on her heels and left. Now she comes back and she's standing without. She never goes into the tomb. It's interesting. So she's standing without and uh, she's weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. She did look into it just like John had done. And seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, 
and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing. Can you imagine? (laughs) And knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, one word, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. That's as far as we're going to get this morning, okay? Now, when Mary arrived at the tomb for her second time that Sunday morning, actually this is her third trip to the tomb, because when else had she been there? Thursday late afternoon when she followed Joseph and Nicodemus to the tomb and saw them wash and wrap the Lord and lay him in the tomb. So she's actually been there three times. But now for the second time Sunday morning, we find that she is in a pitiful shape, as you say in the South. Pitiful. She was in a pitiful condition. We are told that she stood outside the sepulcher weeping. And in Greek, that word literally means wailing. Remember, we've talked about this is a typical uh, mid uh, Eastern Oriental custom. My Greek people, they wail at funerals. It's just horrible. But she was out there wailing. She could not be near her Lord alive. And now she couldn't even be near him dead. And so she wailed. And this wailing was really the product of two things. Number one, definitely her deep affection for the Lord, her devotedness. She surely did love the Lord. But also, it's the product of her disbelief. Her disbelief with regard to his resurrection. And thus, really, to his word. If she had believed what he had said about his upcoming death and burial and also his third day resurrection, which you know she heard many times, because he said it over and over again, not just to the apostles, but to all of his followers. If she had trusted his word, and if she had clung to his promise, then she would have been filled with joy instead of being filled with such grief, which is also true for all of the Lord's followers at that time, right? His apostles, he told them, you, you know, you can have joy because you're going to see me again. Did you know that it is disbelief that produces so much of the sorrow in this world? Can you imagine this world if everyone in it believed in the true God, Jehovah God, and in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they trusted, they had a personal relationship with him, and they trusted and obeyed his word? Can you imagine? It's hard to imagine a world like that, isn't it? It really is. But I guarantee you there would be a whole lot less sorrow in this world. There would be some, even like in the millennial kingdom, there will be some sorrow because God has given us free choice. And even though people, he will be reigning as king still in their hearts, they might reject him. They'll have to overtly obey, but inside they might be standing up in their heart (laughs) against him. But um, there would be some sorrow, even if everybody on this earth was a born-again Christian because we still have our sin nature. There would still be death. There would still be, you know, natural disasters. But there would be amazingly less 
sorrow caused by all the downright nasty, evil, satanic wickedness that goes on in this world today with the prince of this world in charge. There would be, just think of this, no more WMDs. What are they? Weapons of mass destruction. There would be no more radical Islamic jihad, which is on the rise. That's going to be the thing of the 21st century if the Lord tarries. And I think it's going to be the big thing in the tribulation. I mean, you know, it says that the believers, the Jews and the Christians are going to be beheaded. And for years, Bible scholars said, well, nobody beheads anymore. Well, guess what? There is a group that does behead. And they're the radical jihadists. There will be no young men, 29 years of age, oppressing, a tyrant, oppressing his own people as his father and his grandfather did for years. Those poor North Korean people under the reign of Kim Jong-un, UN, or however you pronounce that, un. <laughs> Just a spoiled brat, isn't he? Trying to threaten the whole world. There will be no President Assad's with their chemical warfare on his own people. Can you imagine the Syrians? He slaughtered already 70,000 of his own people, just like his father, his father was a tyrant also. Why is it that so many world leaders are like the, the worst people that are born? It's just amazing. Just awful, awful people. Think of Saddam Hussein and Hitler and Stalin and... There will be no more, there would be no more worship of false gods and all of their false doctrines and their blasphemous doctrines. No more drug lords, no more drug cartels, no more prostitution rings, no more slave trade, no more abortion clinics, no more modern day pirates, no more, uh, gay rights. Uh, all kinds of rights. You know, I was listening again to Adrian Rogers on the way here, and he was talking about when people demand rights. When you hear somebody, I mean, that's pride and all that, you know, it's so anti-Christian. But when you hear people demanding their rights, demanding their rights, he says, you know what that leads to? Revolution. It's when people want to own up to their responsibilities. Not their rights, but your responsibilities that you have revival. And that's good, isn't it? Rights bring revolution. Responsibility brings revival. There'd be no, there would be no more abusive women. No more pedophilia. Ugh. Just makes me sick. I, I get, I really get so depressed when I watch the news, don't you? I really get. There, <laughs> and all the other unbiblical practices of today's world. There would be no more proud, arrogant, um, national leaders of countries. It is disbelief. That causes so much of the sorrow in this world. Crime. I didn't even get into all the crime and murder and everything going on. And it's eventually going to be disbelief that sends people into an eternity of the worst sorrow of all. Where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. For how long? Forever. What's, what, why will they be weeping? Because of disbelief. They refuse to believe in the true God and his son, the savior of the world, and trust his word, obey his word. Faith in God, however, faith in his son, the Lord Jesus, faith in his word regarding salvation will bring everlasting joy in heaven. You can have joy here, even, on earth. Joy and peace that passes all understanding. We can have joy even in the midst of all these awful circumstances living in a world ruled by Satan, right? We can have joy. You should have joy if you know Jesus. 
Um, but one day we'll have everlasting joy in heaven. And God himself, the Lord Jesus, is going to do what? Wipe away every single tear. The only tears shed in heaven are going to be tears of joy. It is said that two-thirds of what we fear in life never happens. We do a lot of needless worry, don't we? Um, and also it is said that two-thirds of what we weep over, what we cry over, are tears that are shed in vain. I think back in my life, I, I shed a lot of tears, especially when you're younger. I don't know what it is, hormones or something. You know? I'm so glad I'm beyond all that. I'm beyond everything. I'm just... <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> oh, how I always get myself in trouble. <laughs> oh, but really, I, I look back and I think, oh, I wasted a lot of tears crying for things that I didn't need to. You know, all things do work together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. There's a lot of tears we need not have shed at all if we simply believed and trusted God's word. We all need to grow in our faith, in our trust of God, even when we don't understand, right? Because a lot of times we're not going to understand. We don't see his side of the tapestry. We see, you know, the other side. We don't see what he's doing, how he's working it all together. Uh, we need to pray for patience. I know we never want to do that, do we? <laughs> but uh, we need to pray for patience because uh, we have to allow him. Sometimes it takes a longer time for him to work out his purposes than we want. We want, you know, we want instant don't we? Um, but it takes, just think about how long it took for Joseph to realize that God could turn good from evil. I mean, years in prison and sold by his brothers, but it took a long time for him to see the big picture, didn't it? Mary's tears were needlessly shed because they were really the result of her unbelief. And when unbelief has a grip on the heart, it causes spiritual blindness. She could have realized the foolishness of her tears, and her tears were foolish, if she had taken a closer look at the evidence that was all around her, and if she would have remembered the Lord's promised third-day resurrection. She could have seen how foolish her tears were, just as the apostles could have also. Because when she runs back to them, telling them that she's seen Jesus, you know what they're doing? They're weeping. They're doing just what she had done. They're weeping. And when she tells them that she saw him resurrected, they don't believe her. They don't believe her. They only believe her when she has bad news. Somebody's taken the body. Well, what was the evidence that was all around her? Well, for one thing, when she stooped down to look into the tomb, she didn't go in, but she stooped down to look into it, just as John had done a short while before her. She saw not only two angels sitting there on the hewn-out stone shelf, in white, they're dressed in dazzling white garments, one at the head and the other at the feet of where the Lord's body had laid. We can assume that she saw something else when she looked in besides two angels sitting there. What else would she have seen in between them? The empty grave clothes lying there in their undisturbed empty shell state. Interestingly, she is not frightened. When she sees the two angels, <laughs> she's not even awed at their appearance as the remember the Roman guard. Did, they, they were so <laughs> I was wondering why the angels didn't appear to Peter and John. You know, the angels appear to all the women, all three groups of women now here, including Mary. 
They appeared to men once, and the men fainted. <laughs> so I got to thinking, maybe that's why the angels didn't appear to Peter and John. They didn't want them fainting on the spot. <laughs> I don't know. But Mary doesn't even seem phased by them. Can you imagine looking into a tomb and seeing two angels sitting there, glowing white robes, you know? Uh, and she doesn't respond in any way to the empty grave clothes or to that head covering laying in its own place, clearly testifying to a bodily resurrection. Now, she does know the body's missing, doesn't she? She knows the body's missing. She sees the grave clothes, but it just doesn't register as it did with with John. That same evidence without any angels whatsoever had it, had caused John to believe, and it even had caused Peter, who's a little dull, you know, it even caused him to wonder. He was wondering in himself at that which had come to pass. And we saw that that word wondering meant that he was amazed, he was surprised, and he was perplexed. He went away really pondering about it. But Mary's grief here seems to have totally blinded her. It caused spiritual blindness. It kind of put her brain in numb position. Has your brain ever gone into numb position? Maybe when you're in a lot of grief and you just want to kind of tune out. <laughs> no, it doesn't, Kathy. <laughs> brain freeze, we call it, don't we? It's like um, when Jacob's sons, remember Jacob? Remember one of the patriarchs, Jacob? He had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember when his sons, now uh, 10 of them were very jealous of one of the sons because he was Jacob's favorite, and that was Joseph. Well, the sons sold Joseph into slavery, and he was taken to Egypt, but they came back with Joseph's coat of many colors, that coat that they envied, and it had been dipped in blood, animal blood, right? Well, they give that coat to Jacob, and he jumps to a false conclusion that his son had been torn by a wild beast and devoured. And his grief, like Mary's, his grief was just so overwhelming that he failed to take note of something rather important. That coat was not torn at all. Now, if his son Joseph had been devoured by a wild beast, that coat would be torn. But it wasn't torn at all, which surely would have been the case. So, you see... You can, you can be so overcome with grief that you're just blind, spiritual, physically and spiritually blinded. Maybe he didn't want to think that through too much because it would make his other sons, what, guilty and liars to him. I don't know why he didn't notice that. And it was many years later and he still didn't ever, it didn't ever dawn on him that the coat wasn't torn. But interestingly, Mary is so overcome with grief that she's not even frightened by the two angels. So they don't bother to say something to calm her because she's not frightened. She looks in and she's not frightened. So, you know, they did with the other women. They would say, fear not or whatever they said. But instead, what do they do? They ask her a probing question. Woman, why weepest thou? It's possible that they intended to speak further to her as they had with the other women. Maybe they would have gone on to say to her, why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen, as he said. But guess what? Mary didn't keep quiet long enough to let them go on and say something else. 
Just as when she had come the first time to the tomb and had not taken the time to investigate matters more closely and went running off with her false message, she does not again here hesitate to give her false message. First time she gave her false message, her erroneous oxymoronic message, first time to two men. Now she gives it to two holy angels. Same message, she gives them to two strangers. Whether she knew their angels or not, I don't know. But um, we find that instead of being still and quiet, I think she's kind of a counterpart to Peter, okay? Because she's just, we're going to see, she's just on the move. She just never sits still. But instead of being still and quiet to see if the two men dressed in white robes in the tomb had anything further to say, maybe to explain to her why she should not be weeping or to explain why they were sitting there in a tomb, like bookends <laughs> on either end of the grave clothes. Can you imagine going to a tomb and looking in it and seeing two men in white and not wondering about it sitting in there? A little weird, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but she, instead of sitting still and listening to see if they had anything to say to her, she jumped to answer them with the false information that she made up herself. She made this up herself. She saith unto them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. Same message she gave to the men. It never dawned on her how unlikely it would have been for someone, whoever her they is, for someone to have taken the Lord's naked body and to have left his grave wrappings there undamaged. That never occurred to her to think that through. It also never seemed to have dawned on her that there were two men sitting in a tomb. (laughs) Didn't she wonder what they were doing there? Don't you think she would have said, Hey guys, why are you in this dark tomb? Did you take his body and rewrap his grave clothing like a cocoon? Why did you go to all that trouble? That's kind of strange. She didn't even wonder what, what they were doing there. She didn't wonder who they were. Or why they were dressed in dazzling white garments. (laughs) I think, now this is my personal opinion, you know, there are ranks of angels. Of course, we have holy angels and fallen angels. And within both, there's all kinds of ranks. There are an army, there are a host, and there's ranks. And I hope maybe maybe next year, I don't know what we're going to study, but one day I do want to study all about angels. Holy and fallen angels, because it's really quite an interesting study. But I believe that these two angels inside the tomb, on either side of where the Lord's body had been, were of the rank called cherubim. Why do I say that? Well, because in the tomb, on the hewn-out rock shelf, they sat on either end of where the Lord's body had laid. It was, if you picture this, this was the reality of what the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant had represented. You know, in the tabernacle and then in the first temple, there was the Holy of Holies, and inside the Holy of Holies was one piece of furniture. What was it? The Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark was the mercy seat, and on either side, facing one another, sat two cherubim, golden cherubim. God had told Moses that he would meet with his people above the mercy seat between those two cherubim. The whole thing pictured Christ. Everything about the tabernacle pictured Christ. 
but particularly the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat pictured Christ and his coming redemptive work for mankind. And now you see that picture was complete. That's why really, you know, in Herod's temple, there is no Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. There is none. Remember, we speculated about what did the high priest do when he went in there because there was no Ark of the Covenant, no mercy seat to sprinkle the blood on when he would go in on Yom Kippur. Well, there was just a stone, just a big piece of stone. That's what he did. He just sprinkled it on the stone. The crucified and resurrected Jesus had become the true mercy seat. He had become the true meeting place between God and man. And therefore, it was very fitting that two real cherubim, not two golden statues of cherubim, would now sit at the head and the foot of the place where Jesus not only fully demonstrated who he is, that he truly is deity, but also where he, in his great mercy, tremendous mercy, conquered man's greatest enemy. What is our greatest enemy? Death. Death. It was, and that that was great mercy, wasn't it? That he went to an old rugged cross for us. And great mercy that he was buried and resurrected. That's all about mercy. So it was as though God was, uh, by way of the position of these two angels in the tomb, God was saying, there is now a new mercy seat. That's why I don't have one in the temple, people. There's a new mercy seat because my son has satisfied the payment for sin. And that mercy, where do we find that mercy? In the empty tomb. The way into God's presence is now open. It was a wonderful picture. Wonderful picture. But Mary was so not believing in the possibility, even the remotest possibility of a resurrection, that she certainly did not catch such meaningful details. Do you think when Mary stooped over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels on either side of where the Lord's body, that she thought, ah! Ah, new mercy seat. Oh, yes, I get it. (laughs) Not hardly. (laughs) She didn't even pay attention to the supernatural details right before her eyes. Unbelief doesn't listen well, nor does unbelief see well. One of the most prominent products of unbelief is ignorance. Do you know that? Mary said, look at verse 13. I know not. I know not. Verse 14, she knew not that it was Jesus. She didn't know where his body was, even though the grave clothes gave evidence that that was, I mean, that that was evidence right in front of her, um, that somebody didn't steal it and they couldn't leave it in that condition. She didn't know where his body was when actually his body was right there with her, standing right behind her in his resurrected state. Unbelief, ignorance. Have you ever talked to somebody who is an unbeliever? They always want to stress what we cannot know. Like they will say, well, you born-again Christians who say that you can know you're going to heaven, we can't know that. Even though God's word says what? That we can know. John said, these things have I written that ye may know. God wants us to have blessed assurance. He wants us to trust his word and to believe his word. But ignorance causes, I mean, unbelief causes ignorance. So she continued her no-not message that she had reported to the the disciples. 
Um, and of course, why did Jesus tell his men over and over again and his other followers many times that he would suffer, that he would die, raised from the dead on the third day? Why did he tell them all that? So that they could know, so that they could know with confident assurance what was going to happen before it happened so that they didn't have to sorrow and have all the tears, so they could have joy even in the face of horrific circumstances. But if we ignore God's word and if we ignore the Lord's promises and if we do not believe in his resurrection, we're going to wallow in ignorance too. And in the sorrows of this world. These, the sorrows of this world will overtake us. You can be saved and still wallow in sorrow. You know that? Mary was saved. But she was, she was in great sorrow because she hadn't trusted in his promise. Well, she was utterly heartbroken, no doubt about that. I got to thinking about the three Marys. Well, there's more than three in the scripture, but three that I want to focus on. There was Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus. She was all about the heart, wasn't she? I mean, uh, mother's love for her firstborn son. She loved Jesus with her heart. I mean, that was her big thing, her heart. She maybe didn't understand everything, but she sure loved him with her heart. Then we have Mary Magdalene. Now, she shows her love for the Lord with her service, with her hands. She was always ministering to him. And with her feet. Don't we see her feet carrying her back and forth to the tomb? (laughs) And she's very action-oriented. She turns away from the angels, and then she turns away from the Lord, and she's all about action. That's why I said she'd be a counterpart to Peter. But then there was another Mary, Mary of Bethany. That Mary had it right, because she was all about the ears. The ears. She sat at the Lord's feet and listened, didn't she? Faith comes by hearing. There's nothing wrong with loving with our heart, because that's part of it, yes. And loving with our service. That's how we show our love. But first comes the ears. We need to hear, so we trust and obey. Um, So she was weeping because Jesus was dead. She was weeping, Mary was, because his body was missing And she would never see him again, and she would never hear his voice. She would never again feel his unconditional love. Oh, well, maybe, you know, at the end of history, she'd see him again and all that. But that was just so far off in the general resurrection of the dead. So she was sorrowing for all these things. But what was the real situation? What was the truth of the matter? One that she could have known all along if she really had trusted in his word. The real situation is this. Number one, Jesus was not dead. He was very, very much alive. Number two, his physical body was not missing. It had simply been transformed into a new glorified body. Number three, she would see him again. And when? Soon. Very, very soon. And she would hear his voice again. When? Very, very soon. And she would know his unconditional love for all of eternity. So you see, she was weeping for nothing. The only thing she really should have been, the only thing she needed to be weeping about is that she had wasted money by buying and preparing burial spices. That's what she should be weeping about. She wasted her time and her money on those burial spices. It was all for nothing. You see, Mary was weeping for the wrong reason. She was weeping because the tomb was empty. But it was because the tomb was empty and the grave clothes were empty 
that Mary had every reason under heaven not to weep and instead to be rejoicing. If that tomb was not empty on the third day after Jesus' death, then Mary and all the rest of us would have tremendous cause to weep and to wail and to gnash our teeth and be inconsolable in our despair because it would mean that his own promised prediction had returned void because he had said he would rise on the third day. If he didn't rise on the third day, guess what? He would disqualify to be our Savior. And there never could be and never would be another individual who would meet every messianic credential and fulfill every messianic prophecy and have the power and authority over every realm of life as Jesus of Nazareth. No other Jewish person can even prove their ancestry today because the temple records were destroyed in um, 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Mary would have yet been dead in her sins. Where would Mary be today if the tomb wasn't empty? She'd be in hell weeping. And you and I would yet be dead in our sins without any hope of salvation ever. I have news for you. If Jesus Christ was not the Savior of this world, the one mediator between God and man, we have no hope. We have no hope. Every other false religion leader is dead and is in his tomb. And uh, there would be that would be cause for weeping and wailing which is exactly what unbelievers will do for eternity. Well, after Mary basically said to the two angels, I can do nothing but weep when my Lord is not here and even his body is gone and I have no idea where they have taken him, she did not not stay put to hear if the two men had anything further that they might say to her, perhaps to enlighten her about the situation. Shockingly, she, she turned herself away from them. Look at verse 14. It says, as soon as she answered them with her false message, she turned herself back. She really isn't thinking right. I mean, there's two men in white, you know, angels. I don't know if she knew they were angels or not, but she turns her back on them. She's really a mess of emotions. I'm sure, would you turn your back on them? I mean, if you did turn your back on them, it might be to run away because you're scared. But she's not even scared. She's having a conversation with them, and then she just turns away. She's just a mess. Anyway, I'm sure that the angels would have gone on to tell her the good news of the resurrection, but they didn't bother to do that. Why? Well, because they could see behind Mary someone who she could not yet see, spiritually speaking. They could see one standing right behind her, and of course they knew he wasn't the gardener, didn't they? They knew who he was. And when she turned from the two angels, there stood Jesus. I'm surprised that she didn't go, <laughs> you know, because there he was right behind her. You know, I, I'll be oftentimes down at my kitchen sink washing dishes or fooling around, you know, in the, in the kitchen. And Frank will come downstairs and he'll come right up behind me. And I just, I, <laughs> you know, I scream, I scream so loud that he screams because I scare him. And I, I tell our children, I say, one of these days you're going to find both of us dead on the kitchen floor. <laughs> So don't you think if Mary turned, I mean, one minute she's looking at two holy angels, she turns around, and there's a man in front of her? Don't you think? But she's just like numb. I told you, she's numb. She just sees him, and, and she's not scared. But can you imagine? Oh, this is so exciting. There is Jesus. This is the first time we have seen him since. In a loud voice, he said, Tay, tell us by. 
It is finished. And then he commended his spirit into his father's hands. Last time we saw him, bloody, gory, didn't even look like a human after the scourging and the crucifixion and the spit and everything that he had been through. And now here he is, whole and new and resurrected, and it's just fantastic. I can't imagine being in Mary's position. Can you? I mean, one minute looking into a tomb at two holy angels and then turning around and boom, there is Jesus himself. Obviously, no more need for tears. But she's still crying. Poor Mary so full of grief that her tears were obstructing her vision, both physically and spiritually. She apparently did not know that the angels were angels, and now she's looking right into the face of Jesus himself and ignorance. She knew not that it was Jesus. Unbelief results in ignorance, doesn't it? So we have now come to the first resurrection appearance of the Lord to a person. It was a most momentous occasion, as you can imagine. And yet, Mary didn't realize it, or she did not appreciate it at all, at least yet. She did not recognize him. She didn't recognize him. She didn't even recognize his voice, which surprises me even more. When he spoke his first resurrection words recorded in the scripture, what was his first word? Resurrected glory. Woman, don't you love it? Woman. (laughs) Woman. Why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? Verse 15. Isn't it marvelous that his first words after all he had been through, that terrible death for the sins of mankind, that his first words are really words of compassion? Isn't that so typical of Jesus? Isn't he the same today? yesterday, today, and forever? He's exactly the same in his resurrected body. He's compassionate. And also something else I found consistent. It Wasn't it very typical of him in his earthly ministry to always ask questions? <laughs> Didn't we find that over and over again? Somebody would come to him and he'd ask a question. Or they'd ask a question of him and he'd return their question with a question of his own. And why did he do that? Make the person probe them, examine themselves. Why? Why, Mary? Why are you weeping? Who is it you're seeking? He's getting her to examine herself. His first question, woman, why weepest thou? That's really a gentle, very gentle rebuke. She had no reason to be weeping. And that's what he wanted her to see. She should have been delighted. She should have been happy. She should not have been dismayed and hurting if she had trusted the promised word of the one she called her Lord. His second question, whom seekest thou, that's also a gentle rebuke. Essentially, it's similar to the question that the angels had asked the other group of women when they said, why seekest thou the living among the dead? The question is really a question for all of us, isn't it? It's a question that asks, what is important in your life? What are you seeking? What do you seek in your life? What are you seeking after? Are you seeking for life? Aren't we? I mean, we all are. We want to seek life, joy, happiness, fullness, don't we? The abundant life. But are you seeking for it in dead places? In tombs? You know, all the religions of the world are dead places. I don't call Christianity a religion. I call it a relationship. But all the religions are dead places. They're tombs with dead founders of them lying in their dead graves. (laughs) They're dead graves? They're graves. (laughs) Lying dead in their graves. (laughs) I hope they're not lying alive in the grave. Are you seeking the dead things of this world instead of the living things? I hope not. You're probably not because that's why you're here. But most of the world is seeking for life in dead places, 
They are. Think about what they spend their time and their money and their energy on. Dead things. You know, one day this whole earth is going to perish. It's going to burn up. They got a new thing now. Earth Charter or something it's called. To preserve earth. You know, Mother Earth. Now, I don't have anything wrong with being nice to Mother Earth. I don't call her Mother Earth, but... You know, I, pick, I don't throw trash out the window when I was driving down the highway, and I get mad at people who do. It just infuriates me. People on our land, they go by. It's a country road, and they throw out beer bottles and beer cans, and I'm always out there picking up their trash. It just angers me. But we don't worship Earth, and, you know, they, they're just going overboard big time about because they think this is it forever. They don't realize because they don't read the Bible that one day we're going to get a new Earth, a new heaven. <laughs> But a lot of people, vast majority of people in this world are seeking the things of this world, which is seeking life in dead places and in dead things. And nothing has a more dead end than unbelief. So these were good questions. But, you know, Mary didn't answer either one of them. Neither her eyes nor her ears had yet opened because she recognized neither him or his voice. It's rather surprising that she was not more startled, as I said, or afraid of the sudden appearance of a man right behind her outside the tomb, like she had not been startled about seeing two angels inside the tomb. Well, you know, I got to think about that. Why wasn't she scared? Well, I guess if you've been a woman possessed by seven demons, nothing is going to scare you. (laughs) After that experience, nothing, you know, nothing faces you. She's grieving, but she's not scared. Why do you think... That Mary did not recognize the Lord? Why do you think? Do you think it could be the tears in her eyes? Her grief? We know definitely her grief dimmed her vision. But I think it's more likely that she didn't recognize him because of the same reason the disciples on the road to Emmaus did not recognize him. When did they finally recognize him? When he broke bread and offered a prayer, right? That's when they recognized him. Um, And I guess the reason that she didn't recognize him and they didn't recognize him, part of that is because, um, you know, their disbelief in even the remote possibility. Remember, the last time she saw Jesus was pretty bad, all beaten and bloody and bruised, and, and then she saw him wrapped up and laying there lifeless and put into a tomb. So she's not even thinking of seeing Jesus at all, okay? So you see a man, even if he resembled Jesus in her mind, there'd be no way that it was Jesus. But also, I do believe that his condition in his glorified, resurrected body was different from that of his body before his crucifixion. Somehow, he looked different. I don't know. I mean, you and I are going to probably look different too, especially if I'm 33 again. You know, you might not know me at first. (laughs) Say, who is that? (laughs) Um, so, but he looked different, and um, I don't know. I don't know. It's probably a combination of all three of those reasons. Anyway, presuming that he was the gardener, the cemetery caretaker, caretaker, she ignored his two questions. She doesn't answer his questions, and instead she makes a plea. She must have noticed some compassion in his voice when he said, "Woman, why we? This is a nice man, so I'm going to make a plea." So she's very polite to him, and she says, "Sir, if thou hast borne him hence." Tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Notice Mary says him three times, but never bothers to tell the gardener who she's talking about. She just assumes he's going to know. Him, him, him. I mean, she's so focused on Jesus, she just assumes everybody's going to know who she's talking about. 
And then she makes a really foolish promise. You know what she says? I will take him away. Mary, 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 think. There is no way that you can carry off a man's body. A de- you know, and when somebody is dead and limp, they weigh more, right? She cannot carry off a man's body that has 75 pounds of additional spices and grave clothes. You know, I don't know what she thought about the grave clothes, but maybe she thought if she got the body, she'd put him back in that cocoon. I don't know. I don't know what she's thinking. But if she had carried him off in his grave clothes, that would be like 250 pounds. If she just carried him off without the grave clothes, I mean, it's now the middle of the morning. Is she going to walk around with a dead, naked man <laughs> carrying him off somewhere? She's just, she's not thinking. Her devotion was definitely terrific, but her disbelief was making her foolish. It was making her irrational. It was making her blind. Unbelief not only gives the wrong message it is, it, and shows its ignorance, um, but it has a false trust in its own strength. Do you know that? And that's what she's demonstrating. I could get on, but I'm running out of time. I have run out of time. There is a sense, however, spiritually speaking, she thought he was the gardener. You know, in a sense, he was the gardener. Because with his next single word, he plowed right into the rich soil of Mary's heart and implanted there the seed of the gospel message. He did die. He was buried. And yes, he had risen on the third day, just as he said, because there he was alive. And Mary now knew it. How? By the way he spoke her name. In the fact that he spoke her name. The gardener wouldn't have known her name, would he? But I think it wasn't only that he spoke her name, but the way he spoke it. Mary. And instantly the wails and the tears and the worries of the broken-hearted little sheep ended. Just like that. Just like turning a light switch on. All that ceased in a second. That was her good shepherd, not the gardener, well, in a way, the gardener, but also her good shepherd calling one of his own sheep by her name. And the true sheep know the voice of their good shepherd, don't they? And as John tells us in John 10, 3 and 4, she knew that voice. Just one word. That's the power of his word, isn't it? One word from the voice of the Savior And she would never be the same again. She went from utter despair to absolute delight in one second. And we read in verse 16 that upon hearing her name, this is amazing, Mary turned herself. Look at verse 16. Mary turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say master. Now, before I talk about that one word, Rabboni, notice it says she turned herself away. I mean, she turned herself. This means... Remember, she's talking to the two angels in the tomb, and then she turned herself and saw Jesus. She turned away from the angels, right? She didn't. She was impatient. She was action-oriented. She turned away, didn't let them finish talking or anything. She turns to Jesus, asks him if he's the gardener. Could she? Could he tell her where he put the body? But instead of waiting for an answer, she had turned herself back to the tomb. You get it? Because it said when he said Mary, she had to turn herself back to him. Which means she'd already turned away from him. She's just nuts, isn't she? I mean, all this turn. <laughs> but you know where her focus was? And she asked him the question, but she focused right back on the 
tomb, death, missing bodies. You see? But when he spoke her name, Mary, she turned back and guess what? Never again was her focus on the tomb, death, and missing bodies. From there on, her focus was going to be on the resurrected Savior. Rabboni, in, in, the, in the Jewish faith, they had three names for a rabbi. Rabbi is just the name for a teacher or a master teacher. But there, you could call someone rab, R-A-B. That is kind of like a non-personal reference to a teacher. It's kind of uh, not, not real nice to call someone rab. I mean, it's kind of like a nickname. Like if you'd say, hi, teach. You know, kind of flippant, rab. Then there was rabbi, which was a title of higher dignity and more personal because it meant my master, my master. And then there is rabboni, which is the most honorable of all because it is saying my great master. So Mary really is acknowledging Jesus as her Lord and great master. He said, Mary, and she responded, rabboni. And even though each of them only said one word, those two words spoke volumes. You know, Mary would never be the same again. I don't think in her whole rest of her life you would ever see her flustered and grief-stricken like she was at the tomb that day. She had been delivered once from demonic possession. And now she was delivered from despair possession. I want to close real quickly. I know I've kept you too long, but this is a poem called O Glorious Day. When Mary of Magdala went to Christ's tomb and saw it was empty, she raced to the room, the room where his men all hid in their fear, confused and despondent, their futures unclear. She arrived in a panic with a look of despair. They've taken the Lord. His body's not there. Both Peter and John ran straight for the door, neither expecting what joy lay before. Young John was the first to arrive at the scene. He saw linen wrappings with nothing between. He thought for a moment without going in, and then his whole being burst forth from within. I must tell my brothers that Christ is alive. I must let them know our hope's been revived. Oh, glorious day, he's done what he said. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive from the dead. Then Peter pushed past and saw what was there, but belief was obstructed by guilt and despair. They both left the tomb, and Mary came back. Though her love was abundant, strong faith she did lack. The tears in her eyes she need not have shed, For there in her presence stood life's living bread. Her grief blocked her vision from seeing the face of Jesus in bodily resurrected grace. Why are you weeping? Who is it you seek? Oh, Mary, look up. Is your faith yet that weak? The man she had thought was the gardener, was he, her master who died on that horrible tree. Rabboni, oh master, you're alive and you're here. I see you, I see you, I see you now clear. I must tell my brothers, oh Lord, you're alive. 
I must let them know that our faith can now thrive. Oh, glorious day, you've done what you said. You're alive. You're alive. You're alive from the dead. And it's true, ladies. It's true. And we must tell our brothers and our sisters. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are the resurrection and the life. And that he that puts his faith in you, he that believeth in you, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Thank you, Lord, for the peace that passes all understanding for those who know you and love you. Thank you for the truth that you do work all things together for our good. And let not our hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We believe in God. We believe also in you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being our good shepherd. And for calling us each by our name. We love you and we pray in your name. Amen.